forgot to read this, but I, when you see it, I wanted to read it real quick. As it relates to us getting on our knees and praying, and I, every now and then I'll do this. I don't do it all the time. I'll, I'll be sitting on the front row, and before I come up, say, Lord, is there one more thing you want me to see before I, and I, before I come up here? And I turn, and this is what he had me read. Uh, now, while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, and the people wept bitterly, and they said, we have, tre- tre- we have trespassed against our God. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to other pastors. I said, you know, I don't see us, I'm talking about us as pastors, I don't see us as pastors weeping and confessing like Ezra did, like Nehemiah did, like Daniel did. But I also don't see the people falling on their face like they saw. In, now, they didn't always see it either. They, some, a lot of times there was a lot of hard hearts. But, um, so I just say that to say all of us, let God continue to soften your heart to the work of repentance. You know, we're not just doing it as an exercise. We really are praying for revival. And by the way, when God sends revival, it won't be comfortable. Watching hundreds of people weep and fall on their face is not a comfortable setting. I don't know about you. I'm not comfortable with the two or three people that, in that condition. But if it rends hearts for the Lord's sake, we need it. Amen? Turn with me to John chapter 16. If you're visiting with us, don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we can put one in your hand. If you're home online, join us as well. John chapter 16. I had endeavored early in the week to cover off the first 15 verses. Then I got to about Wednesday and said, that's not happening. So we're doing verses 1 through 7. Felt like the Lord told me that's not happening. So whatever he says, I'm good with. So... Uh, verses 1 through 7 it is, and then we'll cover uh, verses 8 through 15 next week, because both this week and next week are kind of centered on uh, the Holy Spirit. Here are the kind of the promised work of the Holy Spirit, and next week the actual manifestation work of the Spirit we'll look at next week. So starting with verse 1, chapter 16, and by the way, uh, that means we have six chapters left, including chapter 16. We have covered the first 15. We have six left here in the book of John. Verse 1 These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues, yet the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers service to God. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again that we're here, that we have your word to read because of the helper. It's your spirit who breathed the word of God and gave the word of God to men of God to write down that we're able to read it this morning. It's your spirit that gives us the understanding of your word. It's the spirit that gives us desire to read it and to obey it. And Lord, we ask for the work of your spirit. I need your help, Lord. I need your help in every aspect of my life. And especially when I get the pulpit, Lord, I desperately need your help. And Lord, uh, we all do, Lord. We need your help in everything that we say, do, think, So we ask, Lord, that you prepare our hearts, you'd speak to each person, even those that are watching online, Lord, you'd minister as only you can, 
You'd remove me once again from the equation that each and every one of us would hear from you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. We live in a culture today that tries really, really hard to bubble wrap itself from anything remotely painful, inconvenient, difficult, cumbersome. And it's, it's worse than this younger generation. I know. I'm dealing with this younger generation a lot. Even in my own house, I'm like, if I have to tell them one more time. You know, back in the 80s, <laughs> back in the 70s, because I was in the 70s as a kid and the 80s as middle school and high school, and I know your parents said this too, so there is, a, there is some of that's generational. I get that, but not all. Some of it really is legitimately, I don't think we've ever seen a time in human history that there's such a collective desire, maybe under the Roman Empire, but that was only the elites. I'm talking about almost every level of strata of our society, everyone bubble wrapping themselves from anything that would cause them the slightest bit of discomfort and inconvenience. Not that you can always pull it off. As a matter of fact, no one really is pulling it off. Everyone's trying to pull it off. No one's pulling it off. All the chillaxing you can try and do doesn't work. But Jesus didn't operate that way, did he? No. He didn't operate that way with the disciples. He did not bubble wrap them, but rather he built them up. Even through buffeting, he would build them up. He was raising them up for what? Future church planting and the advancing work of the gospel of God. Yes, to date, he had protected them from the worst possible outcomes and the worst possible opposition. Aren't you glad that God's protected you from many of the worst possibles in your lifetime? You could say, well, this happened, but that wasn't the worst possible outcome, or you wouldn't be sitting here right now. Although it would be the best if you were with Jesus. I get that too. But... um, Jesus was methodically, uh, he was methodically preparing the disciples to stand firm and to be ready, ready to be treated by this, in the same hostile and hateful manner as he himself was being treated and would be treated. Jesus was forthright with the disciples as to what would soon and eventually take place, what they were going to face. He also encouraged them that they would faithfully, and probably to their own surprise, and I'm surprised sometimes when I've been faithful, I'm like, Lord, thank you for helping me stay faithful there. But probably to their own surprise that they would testify of him because he would faithfully provide them with supernatural help. Aren't you glad that God's help is supernatural? It's not like the Centers of Disease Control or the Department of Defense or all these other Things? No, God's is supernatural help. I so need his help. How about you guys? If you've been with us the past two weeks, uh, or the past, um, yeah, actually just the past two weeks on this one, these upper room words from Jesus, they've been a paradox over the last couple of weeks here. He promised them that if they would obey and abide in him as they are the branches and he is the vine, that their joy would be full. I'm still saying, Lord, how full can joy get? I'm asking the Lord that. How full can full be? I think it 
grows over time because we will grow spiritually. But he's told them that they would be abiding in his perfect love. But then he turns and says, essentially, while they would be experiencing the joy and love of Jesus, that they'll be moving upstream. You ever seen a salmon move upstream? Guess what happens when they get to the end? They die. (laughs) But they fulfilled their mission. He's telling the apostles, the disciples here, that as they move upstream, they're going to be moving against the current of hatred and rejection and persecution. And 11 of the 12 of them are going to die for the faith. And John would have if the boiling oil didn't not work because God protected him. We might say to ourselves, that doesn't seem joyful. <laughs> not, not at all. But again, joy is an inward work of God's grace that comes through God, through his son Jesus, by the ministry and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? By God, through Jesus, by the ministry and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The three in one. And as Jesus continues here, just as the Spirit produces joy in us, you can't produce joy. You can go have the best steak in your life. That's called taste buds. Right? Doesn't produce joy. Watch the best movie, have the best time, have the best weekend, best vacation. Those are experiences, but they're not in themselves joy. They can be happy moments, but that's not joy. Joy is supernatural. The world can experience happy moments and great-tasting food. That's why they have the Food Network, right? Now you can watch it 24-7. You can think about it even when you're not hungry. What the next wheel be? We haven't done that one yet. All that stuff. But it's the same spirit given by grace that can produce joy in any season and that produces the will of God in our life to use us, to lead us, to keep us, to send us, to strengthen us. We'll get more into this next week, but I asked the first service this question. Is the giving of the Holy Spirit for our defense or our advance? Yes. Yes. But today, much of the church, because of really bad doctrine, because of watered-down teaching, not teaching the Scriptures, pastors that will teach like 15 verses out of the entire Bible, again and again and again, people don't seem to understand that the Holy Spirit is not just for our defense, which is that we would have peace, that we would have protection, but also the advance. He's preparing them to advance, go into all the world, not just for their defense, but the advance. I won't go into any football analogies with that. I'll just stop right there. But, uh, but, but the Lord's not just living in and through us. The same Spirit is preparing us. But He's also preparing the world around us. We'll get into more of this next week in verses 8 through 15. And I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful God's preparing the world around us because He's the invisible force that illuminates the necessity and the glory of the gospel. You cannot convince people they need it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. We'll get into that more next week. Now, although the gospel and the message of Christ is reasonable, although it's rational, although it's evidently needed, you can see that just by crime and just all kinds of human conditions, we could still never make a person believe that, among many other things, is the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll be talking more about that. But if you're taking notes this morning, verses 1 through 7 here, we're looking at the promised provision of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, this is what I'm promising. 
which is a continuation of things he's been already talking about. Look back at verse 1 with me. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. And verses 1 through 4, and you know the, the next couple of verses are about, he's saying, hey, these persecutions are coming. We'll get in them in a minute. But verses 1 through 4 are clearly a continuation of the preparatory words of Jesus that are covered from verse 18 to the end of chapter 15, the previous chapter where Jesus, as you'll recall, was foretelling and forewarning the disciples that just as he is hated, just as he is despised, they're going to be hated. They're going to be despised. And by the way, his hatred and him being despised is going to be proven beyond a doubt in the hours to come. He'll be arrested and tried and crucified all by the following morning from when he's talking right here. They have no idea all that's coming. But he's saying, hey, they too are going to be hated, rejected, ultimately persecuted. None of this was easy to hear. But these men, here's what they did know. You know, when, when you ever hear the, the kind of the, well, this is the worst possible thing. These are the things that I don't want to see happen. What these men did know is they had eternal life. Do you know that? That if everything else fell apart, your soul is going to heaven for eternity. Your life is but a vapor. Heaven, Jesus, remember when he sent out the 70? He sent them out and he gave them power to do miracles, to cast out demons. And they came back and they told him how awesome everything went and God gave them all this power. And Jesus said, don't rejoice about that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus told them way back when, because sometimes in ministry there's no success, sometimes there is success. He says, don't think about any of that. Remember you're saved. That's what he's saying. So the worst day you have, oh yeah, I'm saved. Hold on. If this really does go to hell in a handbasket, I'm saved. If it all goes down, I'm saved. That's what he was telling them. So they knew they had eternal life. They knew they had salvation from their sins. Their initial thoughts when they heard persecution, all this stuff is coming, their initial thoughts may have been, I want to bail. Let's try what Jonah tried. Go the opposite direction. That didn't work for Jonah either, by the way. But they knew that anything other than accepting and trusting the path and plan of Jesus was beyond foolish. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even, well, if I could do this, I could bubble wrap myself? But you really can't, right? right? It's just a fantasy to think, I can protect myself from this, that, and the other. No, it's wiser to follow Jesus. Peter had wisely said back in John chapter 6, verse 68, it's on the screen. But Simon Peter answered, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words to eternal life. You know, if somebody comes to me and says, hey, kind of give up this whole pastoring, preaching thing. I'll give you a, a billion dollars. I'm like, you can take your money. Amen. It would help a lot. Trust me, there's a lot of things. <laughs> I, I'm looking at college loans that would take that problem away immediately. But then I'd have a disobedience to Jesus problem, and I consider that bigger. How about you? Amen. So whatever it is in your life, you know, you, your boss asks you to do a major compromise, you have to decide. Am I going to obey a Jesus, or am I going to do this? You always have to count the cost. But they, Peter's like, Peter had come to the decision, look, I may not know a lot, I'm a fisherman, and he would go on and do great things for the Lord, right? 
He's like, I'm not going back to the things of this world. Have you come to the place that no matter what Jesus says or what he even allows in your life, that you know you aren't going anywhere else but to him? You say, no, no, I'm not bailing. I'm staying at the feet of Jesus. See, everything else is temporal. We all agree with that? I talked about a great steak. If you have the greatest meal, and I like good meals, don't get me wrong. And I know that's getting near lunch, so I'm going to stop it. But, um, but you know, there's, you, if you, I told the first service, if you took and just put a great meal that you put together and you put it on a plate and leave it there for a week, it isn't looking good a week later. It'll have mold, it'll have all, because everything is temporal, right? I mean, you only get so much satisfaction out of that night at Outback. There's only so much. But everything else decays. It's very temporal. Everything in this world has either already failed or is going to fail. Amen? Amen. Those of you that have appliances, you know this is true. You have cars, you know this is true. And now they're making them to make sure that they fail sooner so you have to buy sooner. Thought we are advanced that we could actually make things better now. No, no, no. That 50s fridge is way better than that amazing Samsung it was just hit the shelves or whatever. Um, but everything is either failed or is going to fail. And everything is flawed and everyone is flawed except the flawless one, Jesus. Amen. So no matter what Jesus has said, the only sufficient response for the disciples and for us is, yes, Lord. Yes. And notice again these words in verse 1. I have not spoken that you should be made to stumble. Jesus is saying that none of what he has told them, and also what he's about to say, none of it's to cause them to stumble, but rather to keep them from stumbling. Did you know that Jesus, the difficult things he say to, says to us are not to wreck us, but to build us up, strengthen us. You know, in math, no, some of you said, I don't, I don't want any math here this morning. I hate math. Some of you might like math. But in math, a negative times a negative is a positive, right? Negative times negative is positive. And in a similar manner, Jesus is saying to the disciples, hatred times persecution is going to result in you being persevering and not stumbling. Because you would think the opposite was going to happen. You would think, if, if I get hatred and persecution, I'm for sure going to fall away. Jesus says, nope, this is not made for you to stumble. Quite the opposite. Because they are in Christ, and because Jesus is in fact God, Emmanuel in human flesh, his method, I, I love this thought, I've thought about it several times this week, Jesus' method in discipling them and preparing them will not fail. You ever had someone teach you a method that failed? I have. J Jesus is the only one that whatever method he chooses won't fail. So we have to kind of cast out what we think about the method and look at who's giving the method and say, well, he's perfect, he's sovereign, so his method will work. I'm very flawed. My method, probably not so good. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers service to God. Jesus goes on in verse 2 now explaining the origin and the starting point of the persecution that they're going to face as the apostles and what's going to come towards the church in general? Stephen, of course, you know in the book of Acts, he is martyred for the faith, and then we see on throughout the next 2,000 years, many 
are martyred and have been martyred and persecuted. Many right now are being persecuted around the world. But it starts, it started, Jesus saying, where the starting point was for the persecution of the church, those that have bearing the name of Jesus, which he said in verse chapter 15, because of his namesake, it would start the same place as it would start with Jesus. The professed worshipers of the true and living God would actually misuse the word of God to persecute Jesus. Remember, they would say, he said he's the son of God, he must die. Of course, he is the son of God, right? right. Remember, Pilate and the Romans, they were not plotting to kill Jesus. Is everyone clear on this? Pilate and the Romans were not plotting to kill Jesus. As far as Pilate was concerned, he was an innocent man. As far as Pilate was concerned, his wife said, don't touch this man. As far as Pilate was concerned, he's no threat to the Roman Empire. There was no coordinated effort among the Romans to kill Jesus. Not at this time. Those that profess to love God and love the law, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they coalesced. They're the ones that said, we've got to execute him. And we've got to use our law, which was his law, to kill him. This would be the initiation of the persecution. It would be they, these same men, chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they would be the initiators of the apostles' persecution and the early church's persecution. It would all start in the house of Israel. So, you know, uh, the unsaved house of Israel, obviously the disciples are Jewish men, and they are the saved house of Israel. So it's, this is not you know, Jewish and Gentile issue. I'm saying that's where the starting point, everything has a starting point. That was the starting point. Now other persecutions would follow. Gentiles would jump in and also Romans, not too much later, will be killing Christians and throwing them to the lions and everything else and for not worshiping Roman gods. But it started with the temple. It started with the synagogue. It started with the false followers of God. These were Jewish religious leaders that would self-deceive themselves because he says they're going to cast you out of synagogue. Synagogues was the Jewish place of worship. Now, we're not talking about Greek temples or anything like that. And they would think that they were pleasing God by killing Jesus. Paul thought this when he was Saul. Remember he was Saul before he was Paul? When he was Saul, he was like, I'm going to earn extra favor with God by killing a few more Christians than the average guy does. And of course, that's the kind of stuff that uh, extreme Islam tells their adherents today. Hey, you know, you do the jihad, you ride, the, fly the plane in, you're guaranteed paradise and all these other things. But they, Paul had a similar mindset that, hey, I'm going to please God. And ultimately, Paul's own execution would come from his own peer group because they were the ones that framed him and sent him all the way to Rome where he ends up being beheaded. So the persecution starts there in the temple with the uh, false followers of God that, that said that they were the true followers of God. Verse 3, And these things they will do to you because they have not known me or the Father. And all of this animosity that's coming from the chief priest towards Jesus and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and this is where Judas is able to sell Jesus and betray him, that's to the religious leaders. All of this animosity, Jesus said the core of it is because they do not know the Father or me. Now, they think they know who Jesus is. They think he is a fraud, even though they seem to do all these miracles. And they think they definitely are in great with God, just like they think they and Abraham and Moses were all good with God, but they don't really know God. 
And Jesus said this twice in back-to-back chapters, same words. You can compare his words back in chapter 15, verse 21. It's up on the screen. Uh, He says clearly, they don't know the Father. They think they know God. And this is the sad reality. You guys know, um, you know, Jesus said that many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. There's a lot of people that sit in American churches that have used God's name tons of times, even pray, but they don't really know God. They've never really come to God through Christ. They've never really repented. And in this case, these men love to use the law for their own power and position, but they didn't ever really humble themselves. They did not come to God in a repentant manner. And so they didn't know the, the Father, and that's why they rejected the Son. Jesus said, they don't know the Father, nor have they known me. They don't know God at all. They know a lot of scriptures. These guys, some of the scribes, could quote vast portions of scriptures. They know a lot of the scriptures, but they don't know the God of the scriptures. And there's a lot of people that know a lot of scriptures, that know a lot of things, that don't know the Lord of the scriptures. Look at verse 4. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning, because I was with you, Jesus says here, I, I told you all this in advance, so that when the time comes, you'll remember it, you'll remember the truth of it, but also you remember that I'm the one that told you that it would happen, and it would happen exactly like this, that you won't be surprised, that you won't be shocked. They'll know that their Savior knows the future. And if Jesus knows the future, they can trust him with their future and to bring them through. And by the way, for you and I, if we know Jesus knows the future, which he does, and you believe he knows your future, which he does, then you and I can trust him with our future, which we can. Amen? Amen. That he really knows. He knows what Monday looks like tomorrow for you. And for me, he knows what Tuesday looks like. He knows what Wednesday looks like. Because sometimes I'm asking the question, Lord, had I known about this, right, I might have done something a little bit differently. I didn't let you know that. You're going to have to rely, and we're going to get more in this next week, the Holy Spirit for trusting him. Now, Jesus tells them early on uh, that he was leaving but he, said, he didn't tell them some of these things. He didn't tell them about the coming persecution. He didn't tell them some of the details that he's saying here. Uh, but he says, these things I've told you when the time comes that you may remember. And he says, I did not say these things at the beginning when I was with you. Um, but now, here he is, at the, all the prior times over the last three years, things that he told them, things that he didn't tell them, he's, he was with them training them, but the applying of what he has taught them, the applying of what he's instructed, that's going to come when the presence of the helper has come, fully applying it. You ever learn something, but, but then you finally have to apply it? It's like the first time you did driver's ed in the book, right? Then you nearly killed your parents, you know, uh, you know. Or at least of a heart attack, you know, the first time. The book said, but then you actually got behind the wheel, and the applying it was a different ball game. And But the applying it, they're going to have the Holy Spirit. When it comes time to apply it, 
That what is what Jesus is going to get to and what he's getting to right here. So he turns his attention back to his departure that's directly related to the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that in just a second. So look at verse 5. Now, but now I go away to him, him being the Father, capital H-I-M is God the Father. Now I go away to him who sent me, the Father sent the Son, and none of you ask me, where are you going? We'll stop right there. At this point, Jesus has shared so many things in this upper room discord, going all the way back to chapter 13, he shared so many things that the disciples' heads are probably spinning. Right. Like, all of this is a lot to understand and a lot to absorb. Almost like, where do we focus our attention? Jesus said earlier in the evening, he told them right at the outset that he would leave. In fact, chapter 13 uh, it, it even underscores that the whole reason that he gathered them was because he was leaving. It's, it's right there stated in the text. Now, Peter had actually said, Lord, where? And Thomas had said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So they had asked two questions that were quite similar to what Jesus said no one had asked. And we know the disciples were deeply concerned about him leaving, but they... And this is what most Bible scholars believe. There was not a sincere spiritual level, heart level desire to truly understand where he was going, which is first the cross and then back to heaven. First the cross, then back to heaven. Which also involves a why. Why is he going to the cross and why is he going back to the Father? And the wondering of where Jesus was going was either still in their minds, but no one was uh, verbally asking it. Nobody was articulating it, or they're in the midst of everything else and they've just kind of lost track of what is primary. Now, they would have known which Jesus is addressing. You say none of you are asking it. They would have understood where their hearts really were, if it, what, what he was kind of zeroing in on, even if we can't tell exactly from the text. But Jesus takes them back to earlier in the evening where he had said that he was soon going to be leaving. He reminds them once again, and he knows that they're bummed about that, but he knows his betrayal is drawing rapidly clear. As soon as we finish chapter 16, he has the prayer of 17, then he goes to the garden in chapter 18, and that is where he will be betrayed by Judas and the priest. So he knows, they don't know this, remember this night, they don't know he's going to go to the cross next day, they don't know that he is about 43 days exactly from going back to the Father. How do we, why do we say 43? Crosses the following morning, three days in the grave, then he walks the earth 40 days post-resurrection, and then he ascends 40 days after the resurrection. So that gives us three days plus 40, the 43. So you're getting all kinds of math here today. So that is your, that's your 43 days. And then after the 40 days, it's 10 more days until the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost. Penta means five, Pentagon, you know, all these things. So you have, that's the 50 days from the resurrection. But 43 days from this night, because there's still three more days in the grave. And he knows that he is that close to ascending back the Father, but they don't. Look at verse 6. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus continues that because he said these things, primarily that he's leaving them, he has been their constant master, teacher, rabbi, friend, protector for the last three years. But he also, now, he knows that they're, 
the primary focus here is the sorrow about him leaving, but I think it may be Jesus also having in view of what he said about persecution, that the two of them, his leaving and the coming persecution combined, that both of them may be in view here. But sorrow, the sorrow is for themselves. They're not so sorrowful about what Jesus is about to endure yet, and that's not because they wouldn't care. They just can't see it. Does that make sense? It's like I was talking the first service. Kids don't always see the things that you're worried about, right? They're like wondering, when are we getting a happy meal? You're like, I just got an email that is bigger than your happy meal. I promise you, it's bigger. But they don't think about that. So Jesus knows where they're at. And he knows that they're sorrowful about what, how's this going to impact them. And they also can't think of all the love and all the joy that he has spoken of. They're still comprehending their own situation, but not so much comprehending how Jesus is going to suffer. But Jesus seems to excuse their, repo- their response, and he understands where they're at. And, and, and this, this also applies to all of you that have ever had kids and those of you that have kids now. Um, if you addressed every single error of your kids, they would be in constant trouble, right? You know, so there's some things you just excuse. You're like, all right, that, they're going to grow out of that. That is just an age thing. We've gone over this before. It's not going to totally do Matter of fact, it might be good if they actually learn the hard way on this one. You know, that kind of thing. You, there's a certain level of you can't address everything, and Jesus kind of looks at them and says, you guys don't get this right. kind of pats them on the head, if you will. But you guys will get it. I've told you this before. You're going to get there. Um, but he understands why they have sorrow in their heart. He doesn't, he doesn't seem to address it, uh, but he does understand it. And he always, you know, thankfully, he understands where we're at. And, and he understands our weaknesses. He understands their weaknesses. And he lovingly begins to tell them that even though they think him leaving could ruin their lives, he says, it's actually going to be a blessing to you that I'm going to leave. And that is going to be hard for them to rectify at first, but let's look at verse 7 here. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Take notice of that first word of verse 7, our final verse here this morning. That first word of verse 7 Nevertheless, it's one of the great words in Scripture, nevertheless. It's the Greek word, Allah, and it means notwithstanding, or rather, or but, but it also means an objection or an exception. Aren't you glad that there's exceptions to rules? Yeah, it's cliche, there's an exception to every rule. Every rule, but there's an exception to a lot of them, for sure. And Jesus, the nevertheless, and to get a grasp of the context here, it's to say, in spite of all that you have heard but still don't understand, all of what does not make sense to you, in spite of all of that, he says, I tell you the truth. Now, Jesus is the truth. He should not have to even put a qualifier in there I tell you the truth. Do you agree? 
Jesus does not have to say, I tell you the truth. You and I have to say, I'm telling you, this is the truth. <laughs> we do have to say that because we, we have enough times where we said something and someone said, well, that didn't even come close to happening. Or you left out a detail. Oh, did I? You know, that kind of thing. But Jesus should not have to put a qualifier in there that I tell you the truth because he is the truth. But again, he's coming down to their eye level, if you will. He's saying, in spite of the fact it doesn't make, nevertheless, it doesn't make any sense to you. You don't understand how me leaving could be to your advantage or a benefit. The fact that Jesus is leaving, knowing the coming persecutions, knowing their sorrow, their questions, their confusion, Jesus is saying to all of that, in spite of all that, nevertheless, everything you can't seem to get your arms around, you're going to need to trust me and believe me. That's what he's saying. Because it's not based on what you currently can see, feel, can't see, what you can't understand, what you can't understand. And oh, brother and sister, this is so important for us too here years later in 2022, 2,000 years later. We must believe what Jesus and his word says, not what we feel are our circumstances. Amen? Amen. Amen? Some of our feelings are totally fine. We were worshiping. I was feeling the worship. That's, but some of our feelings tell us big whopping lies. Mm -hmm. Do, you, cannot, you cannot trust your feelings. The old 80 song or 90 song, listen to your heart? No. Jiminy Cricket, always let your conscience be your gut. No. You can have a seared conscience. You know, all of these things. What Jesus says, what his word says, not even our circumstances, which again, those things can completely cloud. And so Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. Everything else you're going to have to ignore if it doesn't fall under my truth. Ignore it, at least from the standpoint of what we're supposed to do, the steps we're supposed to take. Our flesh is very uncomfortable with the unseen and untold reasons of God. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. We're very uncomfortable with things that, well, God, I don't understand why. We are all grown-up two-year-olds to, to a certain degree. Why? 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 When? It's not just the kids that are, when are we going to get to the other state that we're driving to in five minutes? You know it's six more hours or whatever. <laughs> And, and we're, so we're all, uh, to a certain degree, grown-up two-year-olds. Why God, when, this, all that? But if we have God's word, we have enough. We have enough. Now, Jesus had told the disciples earlier in the week in the Olivet Discourse, not the Upper Room Discourse, the Olivet Discourse was on the Mount of Olives there, which is just to the east of the temple, how the Holy Spirit and this dovetails with everything he's saying here. He told them earlier in the week that the Holy Spirit would come to their aid. It's up on the screen, Mark 13, 11. But when they arrest you and deliver you, and again, this would all come first and foremost from the Jewish leaders, then it would come later from Gentile persecution. But when they arrest you and deliver you, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And I know that this passage is speaking most specifically to when persecution comes, it's directly organized by Satan himself through the means of either religions 
or through communist governments or whatever it may be, or someday the Antichrist himself, because this, this all culminates in the final onslaught against anyone that names the name of Christ in the seven-year tribulation. But, but this would happen again and again starting in the first century all the way till now. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea are dealing with it right now. This verse is their life. What are they going to say? Parts of China, same way. Parts of the Middle East, parts of Iran. And so he said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit what to say. But it doesn't just apply that. I've experienced this verse many times in the pulpit. Things were not in my notes. The Holy Spirit, I know, says, say that. I don't know that he said I just say it, and I know that it lines up with Scripture. And you'll know, or you've talking to somebody, and you don't know what to say, and you forgot a verse, and all of a sudden that verse comes out. That's the Holy Spirit. The coming ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to provide all that they need, all that we need. We'll see this more next week. Alistair Begg, some of you might enjoy his Scottish accent on the radio. He said, the same Holy Spirit who implants faith within a life implants the boldness to verbalize that faith. You can't force boldness, but you can ask God to give it to you. You can't force patience, but you can ask God to give you patience. You can't force perseverance, but you can ask God, help me. Remember the disciples said, Lord, increase our faith? Yeah. Every attribute of a spiritual walk is stuff we should be praying for, and as we abide, God says, now that's a good request. Thank you for not asking for a trillion dollars. <laughs> that is being done plenty on the televangelist side. You don't have to do that. We're asking for the things that matter to the Lord. Now, Jesus, um, he had already told the disciples more than once he was leaving and that he was going to send the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. But he had already said in John 14, 17, if you're taking notes, John 14, 17, he had said, this is two chapters back, he said that the Holy Spirit was already with them but would be coming in them. But he said the Spirit was already with them but would be coming in them. Now, this is interesting uh, he says here in verse 7, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now this is very interesting. Jesus says, it is predicated, I must return to the Father for the Holy Spirit to come. Now some of you that are Bible scholars, or just Bible readers, or Bible browsers, whatever your uh, place is and, uh, where you're at in your walk, but Many of you that read the Bible, how many of you have read the Old Testament? How many of you are well aware that you see the Holy Spirit present in the Old Testament too? Well, of course. He was present at the creation. His, the Spirit was hovering over the waters at creation. We know the Spirit would come upon Samson. Samson would grab a big gate of a city, just walk up a hill and plop it there, or defeat a thousand Philistines. So we know the Spirit would come upon Moses. The Spirit would come upon Samson. The Spirit would come upon David. We know that the Spirit came down upon Jesus when he was baptized. We know that Jesus was in the Spirit through his entire ministry. So what does all this mean? He says, if, if we know that the Holy Spirit is here, and we know the Holy Spirit's been here in the world, what does he mean by that he is coming? And he's coming, I will not send him to you if he's already here. He, Jesus already said in John 14, he is with you. So what is he saying here? Well, it was planned long ago in eternity past that Jesus would return to the Father and it would usher in a ministry of the Holy Spirit that we are now part of. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, I saw the first service, and I'm not here to make some doctrinal stand on this 
thing, but because I understand that, you know, in the uh, book of Revelation, it talks about uh, John sees up in heaven and the seven spirits of God. And there is, we see the seven spirits attributes in the book of Isaiah. But it's very just interesting to me because we know God is one, but he's three in one. But then there's the seven spirits of God, which are attributes of God. They're not the persons of the person is God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. That's the three in one persons of God. But you have you have attributes. And I just my personal you know, way of looking at it. There are different manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So there was different dispensations. And so people are saying, well, I'm non dis I'm, I'm, I don't believe in dispensations. You're fine to be wrong. No, I'm kidding. But um, no, they're really there really are different ministries of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was already coming upon the prophets, but we know there's something distinctly different that after the resurrection, Jesus is going to live in us. But not just that. So the Spirit's already been in the world, but there's going to be this continual, perpetual dwelling of the Spirit in us within the church. He's going to baptize the church, Acts chapter 2, with Pentecost. The church is baptized in the church, all the body of Christ, the bride is set apart and baptized into Christ, but then you also have individual baptism of the Holy Spirit of individuals, and all of this work of the Spirit is different. Well, there's some very similarities, but it is an outpouring of the Spirit, a manifestation of work of the Spirit, that all Jesus is making clear that this is not coming until I go back to the Father. Does that make sense? It's right in your Bible. You can't, there's no dispute. No one can say, no, that's not what he means. That's what he said. He said, the Spirit will not come until I go back to the Father. So it's very important to understand that this work of the Spirit, which I believe is part of the last 2,000 years, age of grace. And, it's the, and we know that this is the case when we get to the verses 8 through 15. You're going to see how Jesus said the Spirit's going to work in us as believers, but also, thankfully, not just us, out there with non-believers, people that don't yet believe how the Spirit is going to be working and all this is coming as Jesus returned to the Father then comes this work of the Spirit. And all this is the glorious and necessary work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is proclaiming, and now he's encouraging the disciples. And if you want to see more of what the work of the Spirit is, you've got to come back next week. <laughs> Cancel your plans, come back, and join us next week, uh, though you're more than welcome to read ahead. You're even encouraged to read ahead. You're even encouraged to say, I know more about this than you do. That's fine. Come anyway. Read ahead. But here today, what Jesus has promised, what he said would come, the promised provision of the Holy Spirit, it's here right now. Amen? Amen. That's why we worship. That's why we want to get into the Word. That's why we're depending on the Holy Spirit's power for maybe some doctor visit you have this week or some conversation you have to have this week or something you're praying about. We depend on the Spirit's power and presence, which He promised, and we have it now. You don't have to wait till next week to walk in the Spirit, but we want to look next week at what the Spirit is doing. But we have the words of commands of Jesus right now. It, it comes back to everything the disciples. Are we going to trust the words of Jesus or our circumstances and what we can figure out? I don't know about you, but I have come to realize Jesus knows infinitely more than all I can possibly conjure up. And I'm like, all right, this doesn't make any sense. This is what Jesus said. That's where I'm standing. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that uh, you not only are the truth, but you love us enough to tell us the truth. 
And Lord, you're not looking to bubble wrap our lives, but to build us up in the faith. And Lord, these things will not cause us to stumble, but actually keep us from stumbling. And so Lord, we're grateful for your method in discipling us. We're grateful for what you have given to the apostles, which now were given to us. And Lord, now we pray that uh, we would receive these things with the implanted faith, Lord, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word, Lord, and trust your word more. As we see how mixed up this world is, your word becomes truer by the second. Lord, we see how deceived this world around us is, and we pray, Lord, that those that are under that deception, Lord, we look forward to, as we look next week at the work of the Spirit, that you would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. But Lord, we just thank you that you, what you promised has been poured out and given and shed abroad in the hearts and lives of those who have put their faith and trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand as we close in worship? And when the service ends, if you have anything you need prayer for, if you have questions, even questions about, man, uh, do I know Jesus as my Lord and Savior? We'll have some folks over here in the corner. We're glad to pray with you. And, and then also after worship, uh, if you have questions or any prayer, we're glad to do that. We need men's help to move these chairs and set up the table for the ladies. Uh, why don't we worship for, together for just a few minutes, and I'll close this.